Hey, hey guys. Hey, uh, I just wanted to quickly ask a question. You know how to go about communicating to that individual who it seems invalid to them if there's not a historical context of kingdom then, and, and that you know obviously it's kind of the argument that, that I know I've heard many times from you guys too, where you know um, that well, you know, now not yet is the predominant view, so it must be right. You know that type of feel, and that's kind of what comes. You know, that's what can come out. So I'm just curious if you guys have any thoughts, response, you know, how you might respond. Any thoughts on that? When it comes to uh, whether I've worked with Muslims or Christians, <laughs> we all want the guru that is the popular guy that we can kind of know is on our team, right? And so there's that uh, there's that kind of social dynamic that uh, people just want to know that um, they don't, you know, there's there's they've got the majority on their side. The question is. Um, you know, we've got a lot of church history behind us, right? 2,000 years. And especially evangelical Christians, we don't know church history uh, very well. We usually know, like, often, well, at best, a lot, well, a lot of times. I don't, I'm sure that's not true across the board, but we'll know our tradition, our specific tradition. And, um, and so when people want to cite history, Usually it's recent history and, you know, last hundred years of history, um, I think, especially since the 50s, I think that that was when when LAD really became popular, is where um, this uh, already not yet theology really took, you know, began to become a predominant view in uh, evangelicalism, Right. And so, um, but that's not very long, really. Um, if you're going to, if you're not talking strictly first century history, biblical studies, you're talking about church history itself, you know, um, post, I guess I should say post Pentecost church history, um, since really the assembly includes Old Testament believers as well, right? So, the pre-Augustan, you know, you'll find uh, so many specifically to the kingdom. Now, the question of of the Jewishness of all of that, you know, uh, they were having conflicts and working that stuff out too. But as far as the character of the kingdom, the timing of the kingdom, from what I've read at least, if you're talking about that era of history, you're going to get a kingdom future focus. Post-Augustan, you're going to get kingdom now through the church bronco church kind of deal we're awesome um and we're manifesting the kingdom of god on earth by reigning right and especially you get a few popes and a few kings walking hand in hand and then you kind of see what the kingdom of god on earth looks like right it looks like an inquisition a big mess crusades and all kinds of kinds of stuff um that you know the the worst Things that have happened in church history have happened when the church assumes power with that kind of mindset. And then, um, so now you kind of get to the 20th century. Um, you had, you know, in the 19th century, you had liberal scholars like Schweitzer saying that Jesus basically was a man, a Jew of his times and believed in a future apocalyptic kingdom. 20th century reaction. 
um, because the liberal scholars basically used that as, you know, they didn't really care about Jesus being vindicated and trustworthy and that kind of stuff. Um, but you, you have, you know, uh, the reaction. John outlines, I think, some of this in his book. But um, the point, the main point it's saying is that, um, is that in the 20th century, the 20th century um, is really compared to church history is really not that long. Especially if you include the Old Testament, which, I mean, we've got 4,000 years of history there, right? And that's obviously a future kingdom. So um, if, you know, if you want to find people that really will press for that, who, will who, who don't agree with that type of uh, already, not yet, now, and that in, in modern uh, academic circles, you're probably looking at uh, dispensationalists. The old school dispensationalists. Um, so there is actually a camp um, within modern evangelicalism that would hold to that. It would be a minority camp uh, relative to the mo most of evangelicalism, but but there is you know that body of scholars today um, who would kind of advocate for something like that. And so um, I think the. The question, the question um, often becomes: Do does the majority viewpoint guarantee something's truth? Because I don't know if you guys know this, but Arianism is one of the biggest heresies in church history, and it almost—I think it did—it did gain a majority, I believe. I have to shake off the dust of my my brain, but it gained a majority at a certain point. Um, I think it was fourth century. Um, because Arius was a great songwriter, and the peasants couldn't read, but they could sing songs, and so people started singing his songs. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod to all of you DTN uh, worship leaders and songwriters. But anyway, I, I will. I digress. So, um, so when you get to question, people want to to point to things that are majority beliefs as a sign of their truth um, or to historical or to a majority view historically, you got to point them to which section of history and, and question and at times just, just point out that, you know, for a long time, Amer a lot of Americans, a majority of Americans, even in the North, you know, believe that African Americans were inferior creatures. That was a majority viewpoint. It seems ridiculous now, but um, it wasn't for so long. Um, and so many other ideas where, where that's the case. That, but people still like that comfort of that, that, that viewpoint. Um, and then New Testament, New Testament scholarship, you're not going to, I mean, again, among evangelicals, it's just not the majority viewpoint. But um, among, uh, I'm trying to think here, among dispensationalists, you'll have a number of scholars along those lines. So at least you can have, you know, and that's kind of what, like John's approach, he states in his preface, I believe, I've, I, that he's drawn from different groups of theology, uh, different groups, traditions, that, and so um, they're all represented in one way or another. 
dispensationalists are really good on a future kingdom, but really bad on the Holy Spirit and the tribulation and the end of the age, right? So, um, so really, cutting and pasting the, some of what some of different what you'll find one particular group advocating for and another group rejecting. Um, that's kind of what we're doing is we're cutting and pasting what we think to be the strong points of different traditions. And that's to whatever degree the person in that tradition is on board with that particular point is the degree to which they're happy and the degree to which it's not it's the degree to where the degree to which they're not happy. So, um, those are, those are, um, some, uh, of my, um, just thoughts that come to my mind related to ways to to approach them, and you've got history prior to Augustine, uh, prior to Augustine, the Bible itself, you know, and four thousand years of history, history prior to Augustine, modern dispensationalists, nineteenth a lot of nineteenth century New Testament scholars. Hey, brothers, <laughs> good discussion. Um, and hard discussion, right? We've all had these hard conversations with so many people, and, and the position is so solidified in people's minds that there's nothing besides and now and not yet reality. Um, then we're talking about um, a pretty serious um, removal of just misleading theological pedestals that people have built their theology on. Um, which is inevitably does go back to worldview. Um, and if someone's not kind of willing to go back and address that, then we, we really have some issues that are kind of challenges that are, that you can't just, um, hash through. Um, I find in my experience that it's just going to come down to a matter of interpretation. Even those passages that we, uh, copied and pasted there that the early church fathers said, um, as someone who's now not yet would just go, Oh yeah, well this is just kind of focused on the the not yet, but there's still a now, you know, and so it's really a matter of interpretation um, and hermeneutics, and it's not something that just breaks down, um, as I think it was, we've all experienced. It's a it's a full confrontation to the depths of what we believe we are, what we believe the church is, and what we believe we're supposed to accomplish. Uh, and so it's at the end of the day, it's a it's, it is a worship of a kind of ecclesiology. Um, a kingdom now theology is is really a Gentile uh, creation that, as Tim mentioned, church history has proven to be incredibly uh, troublesome and just dishonoring of the Lord and of the covenant people. So um, I usually, with my conversations, um, I always point to Daniel 7 because it's one of the clearest passages. I go back to 2 Samuel 7. Um, and the Davidic covenant, because there Jesus being given the the kingdom um, that will not um, perish is very clear. And it's clear that that was not something accomplished in his first coming. Um, I'll go back to places like Exodus 15 in regards to Israel inheriting the kingdom. That's the first uh, song of Moses. The things that are said there point to apocalyptic events in the future still. Um, and... And so I'll kind of start those places 
really hone in on what was the nature of the kingdom um, of God on the earth and how the scriptures describe it. Talk about Exodus 15, 2 Samuel 7, um, Daniel 7, um, because clearly Daniel 7, the, the context is future. Unless you're liberal, right? And then you do a preterist thing with it. Um, um, but I always will just go and focus specifically on the ones like Luke 21 is a major one. Um, I think Luke 19 has some too, kind of forgetting, but uh, Matthew 25, there's, you know, uh, huge passages to Acts 14, um, Acts 2. I focus on those those passages that really emphasize the future kingdom and the fact that the apostles just didn't have any, just any delusion that there was a kingdom happening on the earth spiritually because the Holy Spirit had been poured out um, because there's just no mention of that at all. Um, and, and so then the low blow is, well, you believe a fringe belief. And so that's where a lot of those conversations do go. Um, and so I think Tim's points are great um, with that. You know, uh, the Holocaust was a majority belief, right? You had an entire nation uh, that's like 96% Christian. Um, well, like half Christian, half Catholic. So you had people who believed in the scriptures, claimed the name of Jesus, all, you know, basically come into passive agreement with full extermination of God's covenant people. Um, Holocaust majority belief. Uh, again, just trace it all the way back to church history. Same deal, Spanish Inquisition. French persecution, uh, the pogroms that are taking place. The pogroms were organized by people who just lived in neighborhoods and believed that the Jews should be rounded up and killed because they were the problem. So you have consistent Jewish persecution, majority belief at the hands of, of Christians, right, quote-unquote. Um, I've found if you, if you can disarm the notion that we're in the age of the church, quote-unquote, and that we are the ecclesia, and that is normally thought of as a predominantly Gentile um, congregation that has possession of the kingdom. You go back to, there is an underlying view. I hear Christians say it all the time. Well, they did reject their Messiah. They did kill their Messiah. Um, I, I had a guy say that to me a couple weeks ago. Um, and I think Daniel Gruber's book, Copernicus and the Jews, really addresses um, a lot of those things head on. Um, if, if when Gentiles believe they are the new thing Jesus is doing, well, then anything goes. The kingdom is now, and everything is now, and save your life now. But if we can actually show that Gruber's points are pretty simple, you know, that uh, Ecclesia was used in the Septuagint. It's used in Exodus 20. It's used in regards to the assembly of Israel continually through the scriptures before Jesus ever came, before there was ever a, a New Testament. Um, Ecclesia just means a gathering, an assembly, but it was used in regards to the assembly of Israel and specifically what the righteous remnant would become uh, through the apostles and those who believed after the first coming. So if, you, if we can break down and, and reveal that a reactionary Gentile church, right, as early as Justin Martyr, as early as the book of Romans, um, really considering that from the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul is seemingly steadily working through a consistent rebuke to Gentiles. Um, right? He emphasizes from the first chapter, like, this is the gospel I was entrusted according to um, the, the true gospel, right? Um, and the gospel's first to the Jew. So he, he begins to work through this 
theology that, that again, I've talked about this before, but culminates in 9, 10, and 11. But when he gets to that, those ultimate statements of don't be arrogant, right? You had, you had this um, expelling of the Jews happening from Rome, right? There's a, there's a Gentile and a Jewish church that it has formed in, in Rome. And they're a one new man reality. And then you had whatever the emperor name was at that time. I forget them all. Um, expels the Jews from Rome. And so then suddenly you have only a Gentile expression of a Gentile church. Very different reality. And then after four years, you have the Jews come back into Rome. And so you would have had the situation where the Jews are then coming back, um, possibly attempting to rejoin whatever fellowship or expression there was of a true ecclesia. And, and you have Paul writing to them to rebuke them because they've become arrogant towards the branches. So if you can hold on to that theme through the book of Romans, the whole lens changes. You get to 11, you get to um, him really saying, you also will be cut off if you maintain that, um, that stance towards the branches. You get to 15, right? Jesus became a servant of the circumcision and confirmed the promises given to the fathers. You get into 16 and him saying, I am... Um, I am longing, I've been entrusted with this gospel, and I'm longing to present an offering of the Gentiles that is pure before the Father, acceptable to the Father. And so you, which is echoing this, don't be an expression of a believer in Yeshua who's Gentile, that's arrogant towards the branches, that's not acceptable to the Father, not pleasing to the Holy Spirit. Um, then he kind of ends with talking about the mystery he's been entrusted with, but um, that that mystery going you know all the way back to Deuteronomy, and um, I mean ultimately this is the Father's doing, right? Um, he said Israel would become the the tail and not the head um, if they were covenantally unfaithful. They have been, um, and inevitably that's produced the wrong response in Gentiles to put themselves first. But that's actually a judgment of the Lord, and that always turns out bad if you participate in that, which we have theologically, and. And so, again, these are we're talking about huge, deep, far-reaching ideas and theologies that people have espoused and embraced. But at the end of the day, it's just pride. It's just simple pride of believing we are something that we are not instead of believing we are this precious um, remnant that the Lord is calling out of the Gentiles to provoke his people with a witness um, unto being like Christ to him crucified um, that would serve the Jewish people um, and hope in the kingdom that is coming. And, and massive issues, precious to the Lord. Um, and so I think Daniel Gruber's book, Copernicus and the Jews, really good book that people should read. I recommend it to everyone, but it's, it's a bomb. And it's, it's sharp. You know, Daniel is kind of a sharp, I mean, it's like a rebuke. It's kind of like the book of Romans. <laughs> um and he's kind of has a harsh edge on him. You know, I don't know where that brother's at in his own life. But um, but I recommend that book as a, as a place to start. But it totally flies in the face of just everything the evangelical church would um, hold itself up on. Um, so, yeah, breaking down the sacred cows like Tim always says. So to kind of sum up what I was trying to say was just very basically if, if you can go a little deeper than just the issue of the kingdom, you, we actually have to go deeper than just talk about theological discussion it's just circular it's just going to go round and round and round because it's down to someone's interpretation of new testament passages and it's just round and round and round it's a merry-go-round it, it never stops and i find it so hard to get anywhere um, if, when we when we go that that way but if we can go deeper 
to the issue of what is the assembly? What is the righteous assembly that the Lord cre had created? And so then we're actually, we're going back to the covenants. We're starting there. We're talking about Sinai. We're talking about the assembly that the Lord has chosen that Gentiles have been grafted into. And so just back to the, the, the basics, right? Grafted into. So we're not the new thing. We're not the new kingdom. We're not enforcing a new theology. We're participating in the reality that existed before us, the promises made to the fathers. We're also confirming those by ourselves becoming a servant to a circumcision, as Jesus was, because that's just being like Jesus. And viewing ourselves that way, participating in the kingdom. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, people just need to talk to Jews more because, well, I mean, it depends on which Jews you talk to, but you, were, you really talk to ultra-Orthodox and, and Jews that believe the Torah, um, you know, all over the world. There is a, among the ultra-Orthodox, there's no such thing as any idea about a kingdom happening on the earth spiritually now. Um, never heard it, you know, never heard it in all of the talks that, I, that I've had with, with ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Jews, you know, that it's not even in their mind. And, and so if we talk to them more and, even though they don't believe in Jesus, it's still a good framework to understand things that we don't understand because what advantage has it? You're great in every respect. To them, we're entrusted the oracles of God. And so they still have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, they've carried them forever. They still read and study the oracles of God daily. Um, and their eyes are blinded to Messiah, but they still have an incredible framework to actually understand the scriptures in the right way. And it's something that that's what I always encourage Gentiles is, man, you know what? You need to go and visit a synagogue and and just throw out all of your presumptuous um, conclusions about they don't believe in Jesus, blah, 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 and just talk to them and get some understanding that's outside of this Gentile, um, you know, um, nutshell of theology that you've just been steeped in because there's just an entire other worlds out there. That reemphasizes Tim's point, too, is within the evangelical world everyone just studies their own tradition and and so then their tradition's right and so then people would say that about us well you're just saying your tradition's right and we're saying no we, we're trying to actually pull the strengths that were rightly emphasized in different traditions um but to get outside of our gentile nutshell of theology and perceive things according to um and through our grafting into um, a righteous remnant but talking to jews is one of the things that alert you to hmm i probably don't understand the bible the way that i you know should and that really kind of starts awakening deeper things bill schofield then chimed in with a text message sorry i haven't listened thoroughly to every response but agree with tim and stephen stephen is right for most people their view of the kingdom is the symptom not the illness yet if people are needing academic references here are a few who see the kingdom as essentially consistent with the second temple jewish view Albert Schweitzer, Johannes Weiss, Martin Werner, Martin Debelius, J. Christian Becker, Clayton Sullivan, Dale Allison, Paula Fredrickson. Lastly, the Paul within Judaism movement is a pretty solid academic discussion. Also, within the realm of evangelicalism, Mike Vlack and Stanley Dusant are two recent conservative voices with the same view. Yo, yo, guys. Hey, I just want to say really appreciate, really, really appreciate the uh, the response to that question. Um, so I have a follow-up question just to throw your guys' way. 
another piece of the puzzle that has really been uh, critical in the conversation. So before I say this, actually, Stephen, I really appreciate where you're like, yeah, you can go around and around and around, and it's true, but you really have to take some significant steps back and, and get back to worldview. And so the question I just wanted to ask following up to this is, is when it comes to, you know, Jesus. So one thing that I found that is a hangup for some people is, you know, they, they see Jesus coming and obviously resurrection and, and, you know, after he rose, you know, he gave them the talk to them about the kingdom, all that. But what, there's the struggle in, in people's hearts with what did, what is it that Jesus did then when he came? Why did he have to cut, you know, cause for them, it, you know, Jesus' coming was the, you know, inaugurating the kingdom basically, right? And making everything that, that they see and know uh, in the scriptures possible related to kingdom now and all that. And so, so just wondered what your guys' response would be to that. Um, and uh, obviously I have, you know, just like before I have thoughts about it, but just wanted to ask the question and see what your guys' response would be in context to it within our kingdom future reality and grid um, what was the purpose of Jesus first coming and, uh, and how does that play into, uh, you know, the kingdom process and, and probably there, you know, there's all those things relating to Israel and all that stuff. And so just wanted to ask that question, throw it out there and get the conversation moving again. Bill Schofield then chimed in with a text message. Hebrews nine twenty eight is about as straightforward as you get. Yeah, Bill, thanks. That that scripture is just phenomenal. I, I love how it talks about that. He came once for sin, and he will come again to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's just an awesome scripture. The one uh, the one issue that I have, it's it's multiple scriptures in the New Testament that indicate, you know, it is for this reason it is that you have been saved. Obviously, it sounds past tense, you know, uh, you are being saved. Uh, will, you know, he comes the second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So there's obviously some scripture back and forth. Um, is, there, is there anything that y'all would offer um, as far as helping to bring some um, cohesion to that? I would like to hear some of the conversation and, and some other people's thoughts on what, what the, uh, um, the path is to kind of reconciling some of those scriptures Hey, y'all, enjoying the discussion. Um, I, I, too, come across the uh, same thing pretty frequently. I think that's the easiest way, and that's, frankly, I, David, in response to we're saved or being saved and will be saved is pretty, I would imagine, a pretty common way to think about it. And to me, at least the most non-challenging one when it comes to a future perspective, at least they acknowledge that there is a future salvation awaiting and that it's not a done deal. And time to sit back and relax. Um, but what I have found helpful, at least for me, and when trying to talk to people is just say, you know, the apostles are just talking. A lot of times they're just using similar language as the, as the prophets did, which was they spoke of things certain to happen in past tense, you know? And so obviously if we read all of Paul's writing, he is not understanding himself to, to have been saved yet, you know, as, as a whole. But he obviously communicates the idea of having assurance of salvation because the spirit dwells within him. So, you know, that's to me, that's the easiest way to frame it is that we can speak of it as a surety because of the spirit. Uh, Just like the kingdom of God has come upon those Pharisees for saying Jesus was using the power of Satan to cast out demons. The 
kingdom had not yet come, but we can speak with certainty that their fate is sealed. And so one, uh, one helpful way for me to, to point that out is in, uh, in Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 16, he talks about those who killed the Lord Jesus and were persecuting fellow brethren, that the wrath has come upon them to the fullness, to the fullest. And obviously God's wrath has not come upon them, but Paul said it as though it was a done deal, even though it's a future reality. And so my thought is that that's how they spoke. And though we don't find it common, I don't think it was all that uncommon in their day, which is why the Pharisees hated Jesus, because he kept saying the kingdom of God is coming upon you, you know, and that obviously brought certain connotations, though yet future. Um, Because how would they have been able to kill Jesus if the kingdom of God had already come upon them? So it's just a matter of trying to, and that's a, maybe it comes back to a, a worldview idea, doesn't it? That frankly, we don't understand the way they thought and the way they spoke in the same way. And many times the prophets and and, and even Paul and Jesus, they spoke of certain things to come as though it was already passed because nothing's going to change that, that fate. And so for those of us who have the spirit dwelling within us, we have assurance of salvation. So we're saved, yet we have not, you know, it's kind of like in First John. Uh, we are children of God, yet it is not, we actually don't know what we really will become or what we really are going to be. And so there is that tension, but uh, I think just helping when I've talked about it with people, just helping them understand that we just have to understand that this is the way the apostles spoke. They spoke with certainty of things to come in the past tense, and we have to grapple with that. Hashtag Gentile problems. Hey, thanks, Caleb. I appreciate that scripture, too, that uh, you know, you, you, seeing that scripture out of a salvation context, if you will, is, is helpful, too, just that their, their, um, their um, instruction is assured kind of thing. I have to go back and look at it and 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 read it or hear it again so I can take a closer look at the scripture. But yeah, that's uh, I, I appreciate it. I definitely agree with what you're saying there. Thanks uh, for offering that. Yes, definitely. There are so many passages where, um, I, you, you know, if you want to pull out the fancy the fancy names for these words, it's funny we come up with all these fancy sounding names for things. But it's a proleptic aorist aorist. Um, so it just means that it's stated in a way to make uh, a future reality certain, you know, different ways. It will certainly happen, will surely happen, is certain to happen. It has as good as happened. You know, those are some of the ways you can express it. So, um, and there are definitely a number, quite a few of those uh, passages where they're clearly functioning on that level. And so um, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, well, but I, you know, I don't want to be overly critical of translations, but that's kind of my world, right? So I think it's unfortunate when we don't translate those the way they should be because they're just harder for people to understand. Um, clearly creates confusion. So anyway, I'm trying to uh, address, enough, you know, trying to bring that out a lot in the in the, the translation I've been working on. So anyway, that's definitely definitely on there. And uh, having said that, I... Uh, I personally have no problems at all with the idea of, of salvation um, having past, present, and future applications. Um, just because uh, the, the, the soteria, sozo word group has such a broad range of application, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, that, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those words where it's very context dependent. Um, so the, uh, um, but in the in the context where it's clearly referring to the second coming, 
you know, first Peter one thirteen, the gracious, the grace to be given us, i.e. the gracious salvation to be given us. That's the NLT, which I've uh, borrowed. Um, the gracious salvation to be given us when he returns. And, and these, these passages definitely locking in on, on, on uh, future salvation. But I don't, but when, you know, when somebody is experiences forgiveness of their sins or a demon is attacking them or tempting them and they cry out, coming to the, uh, before the Lord through the right of access that he's made through his blood and receive strength and grace and mercy to help in their time of need. And they're saved from the a temptation of the enemy. You know, all of these kinds of ideas would be because Sozo is such a, uh, you know, just salvation deliverance um, idea. And just really using that, to, but to really highlight that really none of these other, any other examples of being saved from something mean anything unless you're actually raised from the dead and inherit the earth. And that kingdom uh, and that salvation in that sense, basically having a grid for present experience, past experience, and future experience is not the same thing as saying that the kingdom is now, um, you know, the kingdom the, the salvation to be given to us, um, this, the, the establishment of the kingdom, Israel's deliverance, all these things are obviously, I mean, obvious to us, right? Um, having worked through this. Um, but these things are, these things are future. And, and so that's the, the way I, you know, just clarifying that, uh, that issue in my mind um, helps to uh, really try to pinpoint, uh, uh, I don't know what, if you could call it battle lines or not, but just what are the, the real, I think the, just the real issue is we want to carry the cross in this age and, and uh, um, want to carry the cross in this age and deny ourselves in this age. And if we think we're in something that is not actually here, um, that is not cross-oriented, cross then we do, we do goofy things and we treat each other like crap and like kings, right? Excuse me, guys. So um, one, uh, one thing that I found really interesting uh, in my own studies, um, um, is this idea of the adoption of sons. Um, uh, I, I really think that it's referring to uh, the, the greater exodus through the Messiah. And what's really great that, about that in my mind is that um, you have this picture of the first exodus where they come out of, they come out of Egypt and they're being tested in the wilderness. And, and then ultimately... They're brought into the land under Joshua, but that 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 Exodus picture creates, uh, it, you know, it, it allows the, you know, the kingdom would be the equivalent to the second coming, and Joshua would bring us into the land, right? And we enter our Sabbath rest, but the time in the wilderness is a time of testing and affliction, and so the great the thing about the ex, the Exodus narrative is that you can have a kind of a an overarching picture of something that God is doing. Without the kingdom being now, is guess what I'm saying, where Joshua, you know, the, the exodus involved deliverance by the blood of the lamb and then the testing in the wilderness and, and then ultimately the conquest of Canaan. And so we can say we are in the wilderness. Um, the blood has been applied to us, but uh, we're definitely not in the land yet. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't. I'm definitely not. Anyway, along these lines, guys, um, just want to say, man, I am so thankful for you guys. 
Yeah, too. I, I, I do. With regard to what you were uh, saying with regard to the conversation, it, it makes me uh, kind of makes me think about in terms of the way that miracle signs and wonders are signposts of the age to come, but not actually the uh, fulfillment of those things or, or even an inauguration, if you will, since that's kind of the term we're talking around um, of that kingdom that these uh these deliverances these salvations these small small s's i guess you would say or i, I might characterize it would be also similarly signs leading and pointing to that day um but in some regards it's i think um, when most people talk about salvation now um they are talking about big s salvation they're not they're not really uh they, they might even intend to talk about those smaller deliverances but they talk about them as being the big s salvation or at least being a part of it and so i kind of wonder about that just uh um you're kind of changing that mindset a little bit i i think like with regard to the exodus too i was thinking i've thought about in the past just what you know how that is a picture now obviously i think the big s salvation of, of the new testament tends to be derived more from the prophets than from the Exodus, even though there's maybe even some picture in the Exodus and the triumphal entry into the, into the land. There's, that's definitely a uh, kind of a picturing of things to come. But the, uh, certainly the salvation that the Israelite people were looking for in the first century was from, um, from the dispersion in the nations and all. And, um, and perhaps that Exodus is part of that, but uh, it's actually being regathered to the land. And to a certain extent, perhaps that is a process, much like it was in the first, in the 15th century BC, where you're, you know, you're kind of gathered from the land, and then there's a process to get you to the land, whether that's by air or sea or camelback, you know, whatever that may may look like. But um, I think one thing that I've thought about too, with the picture of the Exodus and the trials in the wilderness, is that. Uh, the exodus wasn't itself salvation it was a setting it was not even necessarily a setting free from slavery as much as it was a uh, set free from bondage bondage to that slavery that the it still it still opens the opportunity for choice if you will and that's i think what we see in the in the wanderings in the wilderness is that so many of the people in the wilderness uh, even though they had been set free from slavery they still desired to be within those confines. They still wanted to be uh, held, and and they they longed for that. They their their heart and their desire was to be back there. They didn't they didn't like the feeling of freedom, if you will. Freedom isn't always easy, but um, and so they complained, they murmured, they rebelled regularly and frequently because they just they, they weren't even though God had you know quote unquote opened the door for their freedom, they hadn't, they hadn't walked through it. They'd gone through the, the Red Sea, but their hearts were still tied to the, uh, to, to, to Egypt, if you will. And so there's definitely a strong picture there that, that even though God had brought them out of Egypt, that wasn't itself salvation, um, nor, nor necessarily was it salvation for those like Joshua who, and, and, uh, and Caleb, who followed the Lord, but the salvation really is pictured in in the the culmination and not in the the beginning of it. So anyway, just thoughts that that I've kind of been wrestling with for a while. I 